morning, church. Glad to see you all this morning. This was not, this isn't as much pressing at the 11 a.m. service, but the 9 a.m. service was really pressing because, you know, I always trust Apple, you know, and for some reason my phone didn't switch like everyone else automatically did, so I'm dealing around the room, and it's about 7.45, and I looked at the clock on the dresser, and I was just like, Shell, um, is it really 8.45? She was like, yeah, when, when should you be at church? I was like, oh, probably about half hour ago. Um, so, so it was a little pressing this morning, uh, but apparently, you know, they tell us we just spring forward, right? I guess that's what we did. Wrong, right? I always take the, the extra hour we get in the fall. That's my favorite. That's my favorite because that's the best night of sleep you probably get all, all year, right? I mean, if it's up to me, I can fall back anytime. <laughs> but, you know, I was looking at this, actually, and I learned this week that um, it was Benjamin Franklin, actually, who proposed the idea of daylight saving time. He thought people could save on buying extra candles by using more of the natural daylight, which makes sense, right? But here's where it gets fun. He thought that like by rationing your candles and using actual church bells and firing cannons to serve as alarm clocks to get everyone up, because you know, nothing says good morning like cannons here, cannons there, cannons everywhere, right? Like he said nothing says good morning than, you know, cannons everywhere. But, you know, what's wild to me, though, is that, I don't know how they did the math, but they figured out that in switching to daylight saving time and mildly trimming the candle use, uh, some have speculated people in Paris back then would save $220 million in today's dollars. In Paris alone, $220 million. That's wild, right? But you know what? Like a typical politician, Franklin was only just kidding. He made a daylight saving time as a joke because he even wrote it under an anonymous name because, you know, politicians as a group, actually working for people, that's wild, right? Like, isn't that a little too much to ask, Henry? I mean, right now, in Franklin's own Pennsylvania, we have yet to pass a budget. It's March 13th. This is the longest budget still made in history. Ah, I just think it's wild and too much to ask for politicians to actually work together as a group for the good of the people. You know, maybe Franklin had a right to propose it as a joke. But then again, you know, we, we're doing it now. We just sprung forward. It's just it's funny to me that, you know, a guy who thought it was smart to fly kites in thunderstorms is who we're listening to. You know? But seriously, we lost the hour, but we're here. You know, most of us are here. That's good. You know, and being here this morning is a good thing. It's a blessed thing to gather together to worship the Lord. Amen. We're gathered here together as a family of Christ. You know, this morning we have sung and we have prayed. We have listened and we have sent our thoughts up to heaven. We have felt and, and moved in the spirit. We have given and we have received. We have served and we have been served. We're here together as the family of Christ to worship the Lord. And what a blessing that is indeed. Amen. Praise God. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke's gospel. Our passages for this morning will be Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. You can follow along as I read. We will have it also on the walls up front. Luke 9, 51 to 62 reads, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Last time I preached here, I was confessing how Advent was a relatively new practice for me. I shared how Advent was always appreciated, but not necessarily experienced. I talked about how it was good from afar and for those who participate in it. But for me and my house growing up, Advent was very much a foreign concept and a reality I never desired to walk in. So what about Lent? Well, same confession, really. Lent is also a relatively new practice for me. Like Advent, Lent was always appreciated, but not necessarily experienced. It was good from afar and for those who participated in it. But for me and my house growing up, Lent was very much a foreign concept, a reality that I never Lent desired to something that, you know, some yep. Christians do, like the really good Christians do. But not necessarily that something that I had to line up to get ready to do. You know, this is why I believe that I grew up with the understanding about this wonderful time of year as something people did because of, say, tradition, Right? Oh, yeah, 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 the Catholics, they get the ash crosses on their head, right? Yeah, that sounds about right. Or, or, or maybe this is just this is something your family does. Uh, good for y'all. <laughs> good luck doing what you have to do. Or my favorite, this is my favorite line I always use. I didn't see Lent in my Bible. <laughs> I also grew up understanding Lent as seasonal or very temporary. <laughs> oh, wait, let me get this. You're giving up this or that, but, but only for Lent? Like, if it's that bad for you and you acknowledge it's a stumbling block in your walk with God, shouldn't you be willing to give it up, I don't know, forever? Like, like if, it's, if, it's, if giving this up now to, and it helps you draw closer to God, shouldn't you be willing to, to give this up again forever? Like, if it really helps you get that much closer to God, like, shouldn't you just give it up now? Just saying. Well, instead of making room for growth, instead of making space for understanding, instead of making time to, to move from skeptic to student, I chose to remain quite comfortable, letting those who do Lent do Lent. And for those of us that didn't, well, we would just go on being holy, growing and seeking God all year long. We didn't need you six weeks, right? <laughs> Wrong. See, the trouble is that I grew up focusing on Lent being totally about us, totally about me. The tradition, I focus on what it meant for us, what it meant for me, and, and, and especially those of us who didn't grow up in the tradition. The seasonal aspect of Lent made me only see it as temporary or not important enough to Christians, you know, the real ones, right? And since it was only for six weeks a year, you have to forgive me, right? I grew up in Philly, and six weeks and on to the next thing was what I grew up seeing a lot. Because in that wonderful city of Philadelphia, yeah, none of the women I grew up around had the same hair for more than six weeks. What, 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 what does Sam Cook say? It's been a long time, a long time coming, but I know a change is going to come, or yes, it will. That was my sisters and their hair. Six weeks, boy, please. Six weeks has been a long time, a long time coming. I know a change is going to come, or yes, it will. So, yeah, I grew up thinking Lent was six weeks and on to the next thing. Yet, when, when you make room, though, for genuine growth, when you make space for real and authentic understanding, when you make time to move from skeptic to student, when you choose to stop remaining quite comfortable, then and only then it is easy to see that this season is more than tradition. Lent is more than what we temporarily do this time of year. Lent is more than you. Lent is more than me. And perhaps that is because Lent isn't solely about us. Amen? Perhaps it's because Lent is a time of preparation. Lent is a time of observation. Lent is a time of reflection. Lent is a time of introspection. Lent is a time of intentional self-examination. Lent is a Sabbath to the busy, busyness of our days. Lent is soul-searching, but also life-giving. 
Lent is a time of prayer. Lent is a time of repentance. Lent is a time of reconciliation. Lent is a season of receiving. Lent is a season of atonement. Lent is a chance to intentionally deny your wants and then to prayerfully recover the truth that God our Father and him alone fills our needs. Lent is remembering Calvary to come. For Jesus on the cross and for us in our everyday scenes, Lent is denying ourselves. Lent is making room for new life to rise within you. Lent is stopping and then working to draw closer to God and the heart of God all the more. Amen? And this year, throughout this season of Lent, I've been arrested, stopped in my tracks at that one verse that we began with in our passage this morning. Back in Luke 9.51, we read, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. You know, as good Christians, we know our Bible. As good Anabaptists, we know our Jesus. As good brethren in Christ, we know core value number one, which says, experiencing God's love and grace, we value the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Yet the truth is maybe we know all of this all too well. Perhaps we know all of this so well that we often tend to go on autopilot. Autopilot. Yeah, God the Father so loved, so he sent the Son to the world and made it possible for all his daughters and sons to come home again. Autopilot. Yeah, Christ the Son loved the world so much he came. He lived, he died. You know, he rose again. He mediates now in our Yeah, behalf. the Spirit yes, yes. calls and convicts and indwells and empowers us to become more and more like Christ, our Savior, the Redeemer, every single day and every single moment. Autopilot. Funny thing is, Christianity on autopilot is often where we stall out. It's often where we lose our way. Faith on autopilot is where we tire and where we burn out. Following God on autopilot is where we get entrenched and where we get bogged down. Us on autopilot tends to be where we become routine instead of in rhythm with the Spirit. Us on autopilot is where we tend to make Jesus in our own image instead of letting him make us into his likeness. Us on autopilot is where we tend to treat God the Father's life insurance. Yeah, I can't wait to meet him someday <laughs> when God our Father desires that, that we meet him now, that we know him now, that we commune with him even right now and for the rest of our lives. So how then do we avoid this autopilot? Well, it's the same way we shift gears out of autopilot, it's, it's, if that's where we are right now. And how do we shift gears and get out of this autopilot we are now in? Well, that's easy. This is church. And when in church, what's almost, the right, almost always the right answer? Jesus. That's right, Jesus. So how then do we avoid this autopilot? Jesus. How do we shift gears out of the autopilot we are now in? Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. We look to him. We see who he is, and we see what he did. And specifically this morning, I think we need to look back at Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And there we learn that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. You know, some translations will say it like this. He set his face towards Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem. And how do we set our faces towards Jerusalem? We do so by committing to Christ. We do so by committing to the will of God. We do so by committing to the work to be done. We do so by committing to the kingdom of God. We do so by committing to on earth as it is in heaven. 
We do so by never letting our own stories, our own agendas and plans, we do so by never letting our own story trump. Yeah, that's gross, man. It just feels like a dirty word nowadays. <laughs> Nevertheless, we, see our face, we set our face towards Jerusalem by never letting our own story trump the meta-narrative. That is the big overarching story that God is telling to us, that God is telling through us, that God is telling for us, that God is telling to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? If you want to conquer the faith by autopilot, you must never take your eyes off Jesus. The faith God calls you to is not a one-time prayer, and then you can check in with him as need be. The faith God calls you to is not determined by what you think you can give. The faith God calls you to, as Brother Lamont reminded us last month, is not so much, oh, Jesus, take the wheel. No, no, the faith God calls you to is always looking at Jesus, always looking to Jesus, and always looking for Jesus. The faith God calls you to is a lifestyle of prayer that lives in submission with the Spirit, that lives in conversation with the Father, always. The faith God calls you to is, de is determined by what God desires to do in you, what God desires to do with you, and not simply defined by what you think you can give. Yes, sisters and brothers, the faith God calls you to is never again asking Jesus to take the wheel because never again will you be in the driver's seat. You know, Jesus could do the will of God because it was never about his will, no. No, Jesus always said, no, not my will, O Father, but your will be done. Jesus could set his faith towards Jerusalem because it was never about his situation. Oh, hey, Lord, I know we got to go to Jerusalem, but, but, I mean, do we really got to go through Samaria? I mean, we can walk around it. Lord, Lord I, I want to get to where you've called me, where you're leading me, where you want me. But, but do I really have to go through this situation right now? Lord, they don't like us. They don't even like you. I know they don't like me. Lord, they don't appreciate what I'm trying to do. Lord, I've been trying for so long, I'm just about done. Lord, I don't know where the strength is going to come from. Lord, I don't even like Samaria. I don't like my situation. As far as I can see, my, my situation doesn't even like me. But you see, sisters and brothers, please hear this. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem because it was never about his situation. No, no, no. It was never about his situation. Oh, no. It was not about his situation. No. It was never about his about destination. Are, no. Amen. It is never simply about the situation we're in. No. It is always about our destination. Amen. Amen. Remember in Mark chapter 10, Jesus said to his followers, after the rich young man goes off real sad because he wasn't ready to give up his situation. He wasn't ready to give it up to get to that destination that Christ wanted him to get to. Remember, though, remember that Jesus tells his disciples, yeah, you got to give it all up. You have to make me priority over family. You have to make me priority over home, over fields, over possessions. I have to be Lord, which means I have to be number one no matter what. You have to put and keep me Lord, Lord of it all. And you will be blessed beyond imagination in this world. But guess what? In this world, along with those blessings, guess what you get by following me? Persecutions. That doesn't preach as well, does it? I wish that following Jesus was only about blessing. I wish that following Jesus was always about life getting easier. And that Christians would always be winning. I wish that following Jesus meant that all our situation would be wavy. Right? And some kids said that to me. And I'm like, what do you mean by wavy? You know, it's just like back in my day, we said gravy, you know. Someone from the earlier service said we said groovy. We'll just go with good. 
I wish that following Jesus would be all about things being good. I wish following Jesus meant my situation would always be perfect, would always be good. But no, it's not wavy, it's not groovy, it's not gravy, it's not good. We will face persecutions, but praise God. Though the trouble may come, I have overcome the world, says our Jesus. Amen? then that's okay when the persecutions come. It's okay because, again, it's not about my situation. No, it's always about our destination. And this is why we set our face towards Jerusalem. This is why we always look at Christ our King. Amen? You know, and when you set your face towards Jerusalem, it stops being about your righteousness. It stops being about everyone else's darkness. It stops being about raining down fire from heaven to destroy. You know, if you ever wonder why Jesus looked at James and John and called them bow energies, the sons of thunder, this passage is a great example. You mean, I get it. They didn't like the situation. I can even speculate that perhaps they were not too happy that, of all people, it was the Samaritans. We don't even like them. They're half-breeds. Of all people, it's the Samaritans who were rejecting them. I get it. They didn't like that the world around them didn't respect them, didn't love them, didn't care for them. So you know what their answer was? Lord, can we rain down some fire from heaven to destroy? But God. Now, that's one of my two favorite words in Scripture. Whenever you see but God, you need to stop and arrest yourself and just think, but God. You know, in the midst of our desire to destroy, Jesus rebukes us. When the power of the flesh wars within and and threatens to rage out in violence and anger, we must all the more remember it's not about how well we can fight. It is not about how much we can stand up for ourselves. It is not about my favorite, how much we can fight on God's behalf. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is when the battalion comes to arrest Jesus, Peter whips out one sword, right? Bless his heart, right? These are trained soldiers. Like we read that, we go straight to Malchus and Jesus saved his ear. But think about how ridiculous it is when we try to fight God's battles, right? He's got one sword and a pacifist preacher rabbi, right? And he's going to take on a Roman battalion, right? That's my favorite. We try to fight God's battles on our behalf. No, when we feel this desire to destroy, we must set our face towards Jerusalem and remember that we have been called to build. When we see darkness all around us, we must set our face towards Jerusalem and remember we are called to be the light. And please hear this. When we see darkness as deep within ourselves, we must set our face towards Jerusalem and remember that we are not meant to suffer alone. We are not meant to journey alone. We're not meant to walk alone. We have the blessing of each other. And that means we must be willing to let other people in, to bring us out of that darkness to so easily enslave us. So Jesus shows us and teaches mercy and holiness here. And he and the disciples continue to another village on the way to Jerusalem. And on the way, they meet three other people that Luke decides to mention. The first one comes and he pledges his loyalty to Christ. And Jesus tells him, my situation is unlike most rabbis you have known, right? I'm not here to trick you. I'm not here to to give you all these blessings. Man, I don't even have a place to lay my head. I don't have to tarry because I'm on my way to Jerusalem. To the second, he says, you know, follow me. And this guy's response is one of the best in history. I think this is one of the most underlooked and misinterpreted responses in all of Scripture probably. Now, the text tells us that all he does is he asks to go bury his father. No big deal, right? Wrong. When you die, you Jewish tradition away, teaches right? us that. The fact that the man is, is not at the funeral, but the fact that he's speaking with Jesus here means that the time for immediate mourning has already passed, 
right, that his father has already been buried. Therefore, what he was asking was more likely for him to wait up to a year so that he can take his father's bones and rebury them in the plot. Right, because this is a little bit different. Which where we get a little bit, we move from PG to PG seven, right? We get a PG thirteen and R at the end, but right now we're at PG seven, right? So, so what they did in that tradition was you buried your family, and when the flesh dried off, you got the bones together, you put it in a little box, and you put it in a family pot. So, what this guy is asking, because when you read this, you're like, Jesus is being real callous, man. Let the dude bury his dad, right? No, no, no. What he's asking for is, I want to follow you, God. But I got a year. Can I wait up to a year? You know what I mean? Got to get the bones, right? Jesus sees right through it, though, don't he? See, he's not being callous here. No, no, no. He's just reminding this man back then and we, the followers today, that if there is something I have called you to, you should be doing it. Do not make excuses. Do not keep putting it off. Do not stay focused on your current situation. Set your face towards Jerusalem. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And to the final person Jesus and his disciples meet, Jesus hears of his commitment. And all he asks for is this time is to, to go back and, and say goodbye to his family, right? Again, at first, this doesn't come across as a terribly impossible request. Like, I'm going to follow this homeless rabbi around. Like, can I at least go say bye to my family? However, what is interesting is that Jesus never answers yes or no. Now, by his answer, many of us assume that Jesus is saying no. But let's be honest, that, that's just us putting words into Jesus' mouth, right? We just assume that Jesus is being callous, like, let the man go bury his family, right? That's us putting ourselves into Jesus and, and giving him words he didn't say. What did Jesus say? Well, his answer is right there, right? And his answer is better than anything that we can offer. Jesus' answer was simply this. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Now, Shell's dad was a farmer for many years, and I myself has sat in a combine and plowed a field of corn. Okay, I had a lot of help, right, right? Okay, I didn't really do anything, right? I just sat in the driver's seat. But the point still remains, right? To plow and to plow well, you must keep your eyes on the prize. One needs to keep his eyes on the path of the plow to keep the furrow from being crooked. You know, especially in New Testament days, they didn't have machines like we had. My, when I was in the combine, it was awesome. You just hit a couple buttons, even Hank can do it, right? But like in New Testament days, you had like the little hand plow, and if you didn't keep focus on where you were plowing, it was easy to get crooked and knocked off course because it was very, very light. So what's Jesus' point here? It's simply this. When you choose to follow me, you must keep your eyes on me and never look back. You know, there was an old Negro spiritual called the Gospel Plow. You know, the rowdy kids from the 60s took it and converted it to, to a folk song called Keep Your Eyes on the Prize. And this is something that's real, real interesting, right? Like, as Americans, you know, real Americans, we have to acknowledge that the only music we've ever really, I don't know, invented comes from the soul of black folk. You know, whether it's jazz, blues, rock and roll, you name it, black people invented it, Right? So this used to be an old gospel song, and I think Bob Dylan got a hold of it and was like, let's make it a folk song, and we loved it. But he called it Keep Your Eyes on the Prize, right? And, and like maybe two or three of you in here might remember that, right? But some of us grew up singing this old Negro spiritual, and the words of the old spiritual gospel plow, guess what? It's inspired by Luke chapter 9, verse 62. There's a verse in the song that says this, heard the voice of Jesus say, 
Come unto me, I am the way. Keep your hand on the plow, hold on. When my way gets dark as night, I know the Lord will be my light. Keep your hand on the plow, hold on. Heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me, I am the way. Keep your hand on the plow, hold on. When my way gets dark as night, I know the Lord will be my light. Keep your hand on the plow, hold on. Sisters and brothers, we can all do well to set our face towards Jerusalem. We can all do well to know that life is not about our situation. No, it's about our destination. We can all do well to know that we must defeat our desire to destroy and let God use our creative power within to build. We can do well to shine light in our darkness. We can do well, sisters and brothers, to let other people shine their light on us enslaves us. Because Satan only wins when we stay in the darkness. We can and must do all that. But sisters and brothers, please remember, we must always, we must always, we must always keep our hands on the plow. Amen? You know, in praying through this sermon, the Lord quietly spoke to me. In trying to figure out how to piece all of this together, what I heard him speak into my heart, the Lord simply said, oh, Henry, don't worry, he calls me Henry all the time. That, that, is, my, that is my birth name after all, you know. So he said, oh, Henry. I said, yes, Lord. I said, you know, why do you call me Henry? I, I guess I got a new one when I get to heaven, and we'll worry about that later, right? So he said, oh, Henry, I got something for you. I said, all right, Lord, what do we got? He says, please tell them about your sister. And I said, Lord, uh, my dad was not that much of a rolling stone. And he said, ha, ha, funny. This thing I love about the Lord, he laughs at all my jokes, right? Shell used to. Harper's too. She already learned not to. We got another girl on the way. I'm hoping she gets me going, right? But Lord always laughs at my jokes, right? So I said, Lord, my dad was not that much of a rolling stone. He goes, ha, ha, funny. But seriously, I want you to tell them about your sister in Christ. I want you to tell them about her because she's going to wrap up this sermon perfectly for you. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, her. Got it. That would make sense. I mean, if I'm going to talk about setting our face towards Jerusalem, if I'm going to share about how life is not about our situation but our destination, if I'm going to talk about how we can all do well, that we must defeat this desire within us to, to destroy, and we need to build this desire that God has put in us to creatively build. If we're going to talk about how we can do well to shine our light in the darkness around us, if we're going to do well to talk about how when we're facing darkness, we need to let others shine their lights on us so that we can be pulled out of that darkness that enslaves us. If I'm going to talk about keeping our eyes on the prize, our hands on the plow, our face towards Jerusalem, the only fitting end is my sister's story. Actually, more accurately, it's our sister's story. You know, our sister is a good friend of mine. And she's one of those people whose life is a powerful testimony of God's glory. Her story is a narrative worth exploring, worth sharing, worth heeding, because it's every bit as convicting as it is challenging. You know, her work and ministry is astounding, and it's only buffeted and made strong by her unabashed faith in Christ. You know, a brother I deeply admire who knows her well once told me, I really do believe that years from now, years from now, she will be one of those pillars of the faith that books are written about. When people talk about this movement of God here, she will be and should be one of the first names that flows from their lips and ever present in the ink of the writers and the scholars. And one more thing, getting to know her, I already see the marks of many of the characteristics of the saints of old, right? Even as an outsider, it's easy to see her very ascetic lifestyle. Sleep, she maybe gets two to three hours a night. Too busy reading the scriptures and learning for more ways to tell people about God. Food, she will eat when she can. Yeah, I said it. 
she will eat when she can. As in, there is always something more worthwhile to do than waste time eating a meal. Friendships and relationships, please. She is only interested in the gospel. She's only interested in sisters and brothers committed to pursuing the plight of telling lost souls about Jesus, his gospel that saves. That's all she cares about. And as you get to know her, you find a woman who's unafraid of death. She is a believer who pledges allegiance to Christ and Christ alone and Christ always. She is unattached to any of the entanglements of this world. Whether we can call them good or not, she is unattached. If they're in this world and they're not Christ, she really could care less. What she does care about is this, that the world may hear the gospel, that the lost may know its power, that she can share the light for all of those in darkness and be bold in declaring his message that Christ has come, that Christ is here, that Christ has died, that Christ is raised again, and that today, yes, today is the day of salvation. Amen? But to understand our sister having her face set towards Jerusalem, so set towards the will of God, so set towards the work to be done, so set towards the kingdom of God, so set towards on earth as it is in heaven, so set towards all of that, you have to know her story. You have to know her story, right? For in story, in story we often find ourselves, amen? I guess it's best to begin with this. And this is where we get a little PG-13 before we get to the R. My friend was born in a very Islamic country. Her father was an imam at a local mosque who led prayers every day. They lived and they worshiped in an urban and metropolitan setting. Growing up, my friend was both now smart and inquisitive. Her as the, the questions never kid. stopped. You know that kid. You probably were that kid. Or even better, the kid who always asked why. You know that kid, right? Some of us were that kid. And now we have been blessed to have that kid in our own houses. Amen. Kids who tell, you know, you tell, look, Harper, we'll just use Harper because maybe she's that kid, right? Kids who you tell, look, the sky is blue, when they say, why? Well, because molecules in the air scatter blue light from the sun more than they scatter red light. Why? Because blue light is scattered in all directions by the tiny molecules in the Earth's atmosphere. Why? Because blue is scattered more than any other colors and it travels shorter and smaller waves. Why? Because that's how it is. Why? Because God made it like that. And when you're a parent, you got to hold on to that as long as you can, right? Like, God made it like that, you hold on to that as long as you can. Because eventually it's not going to work. But while it works, hold on to it, right? And then they go, so wait, so God made this God blue. And you're like, yes. Why? Sometimes you just can't win with those kids who always ask why, right? And that's okay. There's wisdom in knowing you can't always win. Well, our sister was one of those kids. And as she grew older, she became more of a reader. You know, her hobby, and this, this is, blows my mind. There's two things that blow my mind. This is one of them. Her hobby was studying the book and traditions of her Islamic faith. So naturally, as an inquisitive young woman, she always had questions. Questions about God. Questions about their prophet Muhammad. Questions about the role of women in Islam because she didn't really feel a fit or loved. Questions about, you know, whether the practices they do and, 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 and always did, was it believed out of tradition or out of an actual commandment from God or even the book? Her father loved his daughter. He loved and welcomed all her questions. However, as she grew older, the questions grew harder for him to answer. Their conversations turned more into debates, heated debates. And if you know our sister, it was very heated. Naturally, our sister started seeking more answers, started searching out other faiths, and she found a Bible. 
And I believe she read it from cover to cover. And what is one of the most startling truths that I have ever come across, and I'm pretty sure I'll ever come across in my life. She read the Bible from cover to cover, and that's how she came to faith. It wasn't through Christians. It wasn't through a great sermon. She had the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. She read the Bible, all of it. And because of the Spirit's conviction and teaching, because of the plan of salvation mapped out by God our Father throughout human history, because of the gospel that is coming, that is Jesus coming, that is Jesus living, that is Jesus dying, that is Jesus loving, that is Jesus rising from the dead as Lord and Savior, simply reading the Bible, all of it, was enough to make her commit her life to Jesus. Even today, that is startling to me. It should not be so, but it's startling to me. God is amazing and works in mighty ways. Amen? You know, what did the writer of Hebrews say? For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The word of God is living and active. It was sharper than any double-edged sword because it pierced the soul and spirit of our sister down to her joints, down to her marrow, down to her entire being. It not only judged her thoughts and attitudes, it compelled her, compelled her to run into the arms of Jesus, her Savior, Jesus, her God, her Redeemer, her wisdom, her peace, the lover of her soul, the reconciler of all things. It made her even drop her wonder. Needless to say, this did not go over very well with her devoutly Muslim family. Disappointment would be an understatement. It certainly did not help when her father, who had been the greatest protector, as well as her imam and teacher, had to be hospitalized for a health-related issue. That's where we take another step, and now we're going to go to rated R. During her father's hospitalization, the community around them seized the opportunity to deal with our sister, who they considered an apostate, who had abandoned the true Islamic faith and was spreading so-called lies about this Jesus. They called together a meeting at the mosque, opened it to the leading men, and that's the key word, the men of the community, including her brothers. After vociferously and sternly addressing her brothers about our sister being an apostate, after listening to their pledges to bring her back to her senses and letting those pledges only fall on deaf ears, the community and leaders would have none of it. And to show the brothers they meant business, and again... This is in Europe. This is in a very, very urban metropolitan city. Big European city. In Europe. To show the brothers they meant business, they took them outside the mosque, and one of our sister's brothers was killed right then and there. The other brother was told to go back home to deal with his apostate sister. Now, this shakes us all of us in this room, and it should. It's tragic. It's horror. It's a horror than a reality that I hope we never have to walk in. However, that sister of ours, that sister of ours, once she met King Jesus, once she met Jesus, she always set her faith towards Jerusalem. So with her father and protector in the hospital, she held on to God the Father because she realized he is the one and only almighty God. Amen. With one brother dead because of her faith in Christ, our sister held on to Jesus, her Savior and Redeemer, her brother, the firstborn from the dead, who died that she may have life and life more abundantly. And in all this, she was empowered by the Holy Spirit who was living and moving in her soul, in her spirit, in her joints, in her marrow, in all her being. Why? Because that's just who God is. 
That's who God is to our sister. And this morning, that's who God is to all of us. Amen? So, yes, with our sister now having her face set towards Jerusalem, so set towards the will of God, so set towards the work to be done, so set towards the kingdom of God, so set towards on earth as it is in heaven, she had no worries on this earth. So even with her last living brother pleading that she come back to Islam, she stood strong and resolute. When he threatened her, she welcomed the martyrdom because why? It meant home with Jesus. When he propositioned her by saying, my own life is on the line, she reminded him sternly, trust in Jesus, and you too, my brother, will have life and life more abundantly. Needless to say, she did not lose many arguments. And this is one, this is one she was never going to lose, much to the disappointment of her brother, who slumped out of the room, defeated. However, to her dismay, he did not leave that room convicted of his sin, and repentant to Christ. Sometime later, this second brother was also killed. The family believes and still believes that it was not a car accident as much as it was an assassination. If you're counting, that as a father who loved and always tried to protect her, even after she chose to follow Jesus, still in the hospital. That is now two brothers, now killed because of her faith. That is our sister now in grave danger, especially in her own community. And yet our sister, now having her face so set towards Jerusalem, so set towards the will of God, so set towards the work to be done, so set towards the kingdom of God, so set towards on earth as it is in heaven, she had no worries on earth, amen? But she had an uncle who was a little bit more worried. So he made arrangements. He got her out of the country. He was unsure he would ever see her again. But more than that, he was happy because she would still be alive. So our sister settled into a new city. She had to find work. So she started off as a nanny, which I find hysterical because she hates children. No, 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 seriously. Imagine a person you know who hates children the most, right? Now multiply that by 70 times 7. Right? And you might get half of how much she hates children, but she needed a job. Right? That's how she felt about kids, but she started off as a nanny. Needless to say that being a nanny was not her calling. Right? Definitely not. Now, it took some praying. It took some trust in God. It took some more total abandonment and surrender. But our sister is now part of a small powerhouse network that's reaching Muslims all over the world, including one of the most leading European cities right now that has over a million Muslims in population. You know, on a weekly basis, she is part of a team that is preaching Christ and sharing the gospel to Muslims all around the world. On a daily business, she is partnering with the Holy Spirit, not just to convert Muslims, and I think this is unbelievable. She's converting imams, Islamic leaders with flocks of people. She's converting them to King Jesus, the King, the Redeemer. And all the while, she can be deported at any moment. She refuses asylum. She refuses protection from the government. She inspires me. She could care less about the government because she says, if I get deported and sent back home, martyrdom is just sweet victory and surrender and home with Jesus. She remains resolute. fixed on the prize. Her, Her face is set towards Jerusalem. The writer of Hebrew reminds us this, 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know what the Lord, and I asked Randy to come up as we get ready for our closing song. What the Lord has taught me this Lenten season, I hope all of us this morning, is simply this. Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem is also our journey. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem because he was to die. Jesus was to suffer, and we too must suffer and die. But take heart, sisters and brothers, we have Christ. Take heart, sisters and brothers, we have the Father. Take heart, sisters and brothers, we have the Spirit. Take heart, we have the blessing of the community of each other. The great cloud of witnesses that has come is here and will come. Stay resolute, sisters and brothers. Keep your hands steady on the plow. Keep your eyes fixed on the prize. Set your face towards Jerusalem. Jesus reached Calvary by setting his face towards Jerusalem. He endured the cross for the joy that was before him. He triumphed over opposition from sinners and the dark forces of this world. And as our sister reminds us, as the life of Jesus reminds us, set your face towards Jerusalem. Do not grow weary. Do not lose heart. We win in the end. Amen? God bless you. I'd like to also invite the intercessors up. I know it's 1230, so we got to go, but... If you need prayer for anything, please come up. Um, yeah, let's pray. Let's worship. Two weeks ago, we closed out the service with Then Can It Be. We're going to sing that again, but this time we're going to sing the words that John Wesley or Charles Wesley originally wrote for the song. Please stand and follow the words on the screen.
in here. 